This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club, the world's first photo book of the month club. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected photographers and publishers in the industry to send handpicked books to your door. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com and they'll send you any book of your choice from their shop free when you use the promo code MAGICHOUR. Charcoal Book Club is the best way to keep your library stocked and up to date with the most essential work in contemporary photography. That's charcoalbookclub.com and the code MAGICHOUR to claim your free book. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. On the boat, sir, you can walk around and take a picture like you want here, and we'll work our way down and go take a look. Every trip you do is different. Your rods will look. See, yesterday, we saw alligators all day long yesterday. We're on a swamp tour in one of the bayous just outside of New Orleans with a tour guide named Captain Tom. I was just along for the ride, but Aaron J. Nelson was on the lookout for the Frenier Graveyard. A faith healer named Julia Brown, rumored to be a voodoo priestess, is buried there, along with all the residents of a town that once was. Brown was known to correctly predict natural disasters in surrounding areas, and she said that when she died, the town of Frenier would come with her. On the day of her funeral, on September 29, 1915, a Category 4 hurricane hit Louisiana and took the town with it. For the past little while, Atlanta-based artist Erin J. Nelson has been traveling to barrier islands, monuments, and sites like that one to make pictures. One of the overarching themes in this body of work is climate change, but her approach to her stunning mixed-media work is as original and personal as it gets. Her work has evolved from straight photographs to tapestries to ceramics incorporating her photos. This latest body of work will be shown at the Whitney this month in a group show called Between the Waters. At 28 years old, Nelson is a force to be reckoned with. Aside from her own artistic practice, she's a curatorial assistant at the High Museum in Atlanta in both the photography and folk art departments. And she's a co-founder of a gallery called Species that she and her husband, artist Jason Benson, ran out of their studio. We drove through the Louisiana landscape, listening to Odetta, often surrounded by huge expanses of dead trees dangling with Spanish moss. The sites that we visited have histories of significance that are charged, but I was curious about what she's actually looking for as a photographer when she visits one. I think, as we saw with the very earliest moments of photography with Matthew Brady and Civil War photography, artists and photographers have always been instrumentalized to record and to be the arbiters of this kind of visual material of mementos, of souvenirs, of memorials. That's so much a part of the history of photography and to go to these sites and to try to find alternative histories or to look at the underbelly of those things it feels like I'm able to reclaim some of the agency of an artist um but in a way like kill the fathers mm. <laughs> I keep calling it like um <laughs> who are the other fathers uh well Friedland has got to be in there I mean, not, I don't want to kill Friedlander. No, 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 none of us want to kill <laughs> No, Friedlander. I mean, it's not about killing the <laughs> photographer f- fathers, but more just about like this notion of like European and, and white dominance over the United States, which I, uh, okay, yeah, those like yeah, killing yeah. that kind of father. That father, okay. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I feel like those are often like the powers that dictate like who gets to photograph and whose kind of artworks p- remain and preserve and become part of like these public squares or part of museums or historical records. So you work as a photographer, like when you when you visit um, one of these sites, you you're, you're going as a photographer to take pictures, but it's only a starting point for your work. Yeah. 
I wonder if you could just talk a bit about your process and describe the genesis of taking a photograph while taking and selecting a photograph and then what you do with it after. So I studied photography pretty seriously in undergraduate and was in New York and very much like in a photo world and looking at photography, contemporary and historical. All of my day jobs have been in photography in some way, historical or contemporary. And I've always loved the medium, but it's always felt restrictive or that it doesn't do enough or it doesn't yield to what I need it to do enough. So when I first started making work independently after I got out of school, I felt really dissatisfied with what a photographer like just a photographic print could do and the limits of that as a form. So I began to just experiment with different, first with just, am I allowed to curse? Yeah. I first started just like fucking with the negative. So I had all of these like high res scans and I had no resources, you know, once you leave school and, you know, right after I left school, I also went through this breakup that was so tied to my relationship with photography. Hmm. Um, And like my partner was a photographer. We had a lot of the same friends who were all photographers. And um, like that breakup kind of contributed to my uh, disillusionment with straight straight photography, quote unquote. Hmm. And um, so I started just, yeah, like violently kind of fuck up my files and Photoshop and um, digitally collage and paint and like be really active with the product of a photography and with an archive. And and that lent itself to early experimentations. Then it kind of rested in this textile practice. Part of what I didn't like about um, printed photographs is that, to me, it didn't really embody all the ways that we see photographs. I was really mesmerized by when you see a photograph wrapped around a bus or like a billboard that's kind of peeling off or a newspaper that's crumpled and the way that um the uncanniness of photography kind of like chips away in those moments or that it kind of starts to warp and react to the world that it has to live in Mm. um so I thought fabric was a really good medium to start to embody that and so I began making quilts that practice has definitely still continued. And then recently I've been making these ceramic markers um, using prints on fabric. So yeah, I mean, photography is the first step and it's really the thing that's always interested me about images is they're not so much their art historical implications as much as their cultural, broader cultural implications. So Mm. as advertisement, as memento. Um, So I think trying to, think really carefully about how these archives or files end up as objects and then to further kind of add my own craft or artistic desires onto those things. Hmm. It's the only way I've found to really make art. (laughs) Like it has to start with photography or it has to somehow touch photography in some way. But I don't think many people would call what I do photography. Right. I mean, yeah, because if you would see one of your pieces, you wouldn't immediately think photography or necessarily notice it. And I think it's funny. So many people have no idea that I take the pictures. I have so many people who either have to ask or when I when they start saying, so you find these things online, I have to be like, no, I take these. These are, it's part of, it's part of the larger composition. And I think that that's a, um, I don't think I'm the only artist doing it, but I think that it's been really hard for photography to um, cross boundaries into more, mixed media or like 21st century art forms or it becomes a very meta um and i think people just 
trying to use those slippages for like personal expression or something that's more emotive and not just trying to be meta or like hyper theoretical is, is maybe a little bit rarer. And I would say that's more what I'm trying to do. Mm. Is it important that your own photographs be your starting points? I think so. I mean, sometimes I find a photograph and I'm enamored with it, but then I still have to use my own language or my own images to understand why I'm so in love with it or to like build out the narrative around it. So for instance, I found this picture of like a cat lying on a scanner bed and someone just took a scan of the cat's belly and the cat was like looking down at the scanner glass. And I just thought that that was so beautiful. Mm. But then I started to make all these images with these like glass figurines that I was making, like looking up at a camera and start to try to mimic a scanner bed for photographing octopuses. So even when I'm like inspired by found images, I try to always relocate that try to understand what I'm attracted to or what about it speaks to me um, and let it kind of overlap with my own work. Hmm. I'm curious about how your content interests were shifting at the same time. Like I'm I'm interested in where the the interest in water and octopuses and (laughs) marine life, where all that kind of came in. Yeah, I mean, so I would say that when I was doing quote-unquote straight photography, I was really interested in two things like street photography which I think is still present like I did a whole quilt series that was based on this kind of um update on street photography where I was making these like street quilts almost that sounds horrible but like um yeah like using black and white street photography as like a quilting medium um as a way to like speak to how layered like our experience of cities and technology has become Um, and certainly like an interest in technology is kind of what segued me from straight photography into these more kind of multivalent or hybrid forms. Um, because even when I was making straight photographs, I wasn't able to really like poke at the edges of what my experience was as a human, which was so imbued with screens and technology from such a young age. Mm -hmm. And it felt like I was denying the reality of my life, not to bring that into the work. Right. And so when I started to think about screens and technology, I mean, it immediately for me goes to like the magical or the fluid and it starts to speak to um, porousness and like what is real and what is not real and anxiety. And those things kind of build out to like, it just becomes this very big kind of impossible question. And I guess... I mean, it's like one thing leads to another, like if this, then this, then this, then this, but ultimately it led me to octopuses Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, because octopuses to me were kind of like photographic in the way that their skin operates. Like they change their form. They can change the colors of their skin with so much precision. They can rewrite their RNA to change their forms. And um, so they were kind of like these camouflagers and had almost like photographic properties inherent in their biology. And that felt almost like the next step of what humans are going to be like. Like we're going to have the screens and the images like built into our own biology or that's kind of what it starts to feel like. So they embody that to me. Then they also embodied something that like was less gendered. I mean, they're very lonely animals and they're not so gendered. So they were kind of like these queer alien underwater photographic magical beings. And to me that was such a wonderful kind of, speculative idea of like where humanity could go and then um I was very inspired by this piece of music called Become Ocean and it was basically just these walls of sound that kind of crescendoed like waves 
and he lives in Alaska and his whole, I listened actually to a podcast and it was all about, you know what I'm talking yeah, about, Yeah, you're right? talking about um, Adams, John, John Luther Ra- Adams. John Luther Adams. Yeah. yeah, it was a John Luther Adams piece and he was on Meet the Composer. Meet and the so Composer, he, yeah. Yeah, so he lives in Alaska yeah. and it was just beautiful listening to him and the way that he summed up... Um, climate change and the way that it affected his work was so beautiful and to me embodied like this kind of broader question that I was trying to ask of you know photographing nature because I did photograph quite a bit of nature and farms and seeds when I was making straight photography which was um you know all human life and everything that has ever been came out of the ocean yeah and if we don't wise up and do something quick pretty soon we will commit all of it to go back to the ocean Really and I just thought it was like such a amazing, I have chills now just saying it <laughs> because it was such a macro view, but it's so perfectly embodied, like all of the anxiety and what's at stake. Um, that I just became obsessed with this notion of falling back into the ocean. And certainly um, I think we've seen with mega storms and human migrations by water, the way in which the ocean's already starting to reclaim human civilization and like, the world on land Mm -hmm. and so it seems like this big problem and then I guess one of the things I was really interested in is um how photography this is kind of a non sequitur but just in photography how we have and through technology because I mean to me photography and technology are combined they're so intrinsically 21st century and 20th century um we have so much omniscience we can see everything we can surveil everything and yet we remain so blind to the environmental situation that we're putting ourselves in or willfully ignorant like I don't know if it's so much about blindness or ignorance so I guess trying to just look at water and look at oceans and look at ocean creatures for me was like a way to open my eyes to this kind of future underwater reality it's just kind of poetic and sad I guess and sci-fi. <laughs> Your work is pretty sci-fi. I mean, even now photographing on the coast, like they're going onto these ceramics with these, they're kind of modeled after like receivers almost. They're like these knobs that almost look like receiver not knobs, almost as though they're like waiting to receive information from the outside world or to transmit some kind of information to the outside world. When you embark on a new project, the way that you speak about your interests, there's such enthusiasm and passion in there. I guess what I'm interested in is, do you see it as an exploratory process or do you see it as something that you just see that you, that you, you want to say? You're right. It's like, is it exploration or is it like statement-based and political? And I think that it is more about exploration um, for sure. Before I got into the arts, I was a total science nerd. In high school, I was on the science team competitively (laughs) and like always thought that I would be a marine biologist or a doctor. You thought you'd be a marine biologist? Yeah, that was like one of my childhood dreams. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it for me is like, and a lot of my early interests in art even were about kind of visualizing or trying to chart these things in a way that I knew because for me, I'm not like a very empirically logical or like obsessed with everything making sense or fitting into a box like I like these big expansive exploratory kind of propositional questions 
And so it's a way for me to use photography and use art as a means of deep engagement with these other areas of what it means to be alive <laughs> mm-hmm. that maybe like I don't see art often touching in a way or if it does it's usually like it's strange it's it's a way to meld like an interest in literature and narrative with this interest in science and exploration but yeah I mean um in the way that it's hybrid like I hope that it becomes I'm not trying to project anything to anyone I really want people to be swept up in like the evocative or like emotive possibilities of art and I think that that's the way that you move people to see the world in a new way, not by slapping them over the head with something overtly political. Is that the overarching quality that you look for in work that you, that you respond to most? Not even. I mean, I feel like I come to art with a very kind of like privileged and uh, learned way to look at art. <laughs> um, so? Just having gone to art school and lived in New York and then been part of the art world, I mean, sometimes... I find it hard to know if I'm liking something in a pure sense or in a, like a learned sense because you're s- taught in art school how to draw these value judgments. And particularly at the school that I went to, it was like it really was not about representational photography. It was all about the political and all about this kind of um, instrumental like New York art for art's sake. Yeah. Um, and I guess what I tend to like with with artwork that I see in the world is really like simple or kind of like asinine things that I just like haven't seen or haven't thought about. And then I also like the hyper complex, like when people just fall so deep into making their own world. So, I mean, I love like Edward, I was just looking at some like Weston shells Mm -hmm. (laughs) last week and I was so enamored with them. And then I also really love, you know, self-taught, we're going to go to a self-taught art environment tomorrow where somebody spent their entire life making this magical garden for what reason? I'm not sure, but it's like (laughs) this mix between like the hyper simple and the hyper complex, I feel like is generally what I'm drawn to. Yeah. But I also like to your question about exploration, like I, I mean, we were talking before you hit record about how much you love and look at photography and art. I don't really look at them. I mean, I look at art because my job is in the arts, but I don't like actively. I've never been someone who just like cannot get enough of going to museums. I get very visually fatigued. I get very worn out by looking at art. I become frustrated. And when I see the same stuff over and over again, it kind of bums me out. So I look to other forms of visual culture, like I think. What? Um, like reality tv movies just going on walks um historical material futurist material just i don't know just try to look i also um i get a lot of inspiration from just objects because i'm my work is so objecty that i get a lot from blankets or bowls (laughs) or um scene artifacts I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
you're a very interesting artist in that you make your work, but you also do all kinds of other different things in and around your practice. You you have a day job. You work as a curatorial assistant mm-hmm. at the High Museum in Atlanta. Um, you had a project space called Species ATL mm-hmm. where you curated shows of work that you were really into. Mm-hmm. You also have this new little project with your husband, artist Jason Benson, mm-hmm. uh, where you guys make ceramic together that you, that you sell on Instagram. There's something very entrepreneurial about about all of those activities. I get a sense that for you, it's not enough to just kind of make your work and hope that it gets seen. I think it's just that I'm a control freak. <laughs> like I see <laughs> museums and I want to do something different or I see... Um, it's a mix of like being a control freak and then also (laughs) for me, like not wanting to adjust the work based on market pressures, but not, you know, having money independently. So using what I know from like my education and from art as a way to make money. So (laughs) whether that's like dealing other people's art or being, um, you know, in a curatorial role or making um, home goods with my husband as we drink wine on the couch for our friends (laughs) is like, yeah, I mean, it is entrepreneurial because I don't want the thing that means the most to have to be that, if that makes sense. Like I, the worst thing for me would be if my practice became entrepreneurial because it's, it's, that's not. Right. Maybe entre- I, I knew as I was saying entrepreneurial that it wasn't, that you probably no, wouldn't like that word. I do like that word. Mm-hmm. I think it applies like very, I mean, I, I, I said in the car, diversify to survive. Uh-huh. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's true. Like I write and I do all these things. I, I never went to graduate school. I don't really feel like I want to be an adjunct professor or a full-time professor. I don't really have that bent. So finding other paths besides pursuing an expensive you know, advanced degree and being an underpaid professor, like for me is how I've been able to, you know, cut my teeth in the art world. Hmm. Do you think engaging in those kinds of activities, those peripheral activities around your practice are almost part of the job of the contemporary artist today? Or is it just something more uh, personal? Something just things that you're kind of into? I think everyone's different. I mean, I have a lot of different aspects of my persona and desires like I do we were talking in the car like I feel this bent towards like leadership or how can we like change institutions or how can we reform the art like I have a very reformist and kind of active thought about all of this I think maybe because I've found it so difficult just to be an artist um in terms of making money yeah Mm -hmm. or and even just like I don't live in New York, being a woman artist is already unbelievably hard. I don't occupy like traditional Western forms of like beauty that I can, you know, capitalize on to advance my career, which sadly I think like helps some people. I don't know. I just like don't fit a mold really. And, um, there wasn't like any kind of easy, I mean, I make work that's so in between mediums already. I'm a woman artist. I don't live in New York. I don't live in LA. So like the odds are really stacked against me. So yeah, diversify to survive. (laughs) (laughs) The words you live by. Yeah. (laughs) But I think like it all feeds in too because, um, I mean, I like design. I love writing. I like 
curatorial work. I like being an advocate for art that I think is important. And I don't think that that's like a requisite for being a contemporary artist. I think there are examples of a lot of artists that work that way um, or are that way. And for you, they all play off each other. They all inform each other. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I try to like hide one or (laughs) try to just like be one mostly at a given time. But I mean, I think it's all related. I mean, art is life and life is art and they're all different forms of that, I guess. Yeah. I just want to ask you about the show that you curated. Is it still on now? It is still on. It'll be up until April. What's the show called? It's called A Fire That No Water Could Put Out. And it's um, a civil rights photo show. And it's um, from our collection. So the High is known for this fantastic civil rights photography collection. Um, And we did a really landmark exhibition in 2008 called Road to Freedom, which is one of the first, you know, major special exhibitions that looked at this visual content as a subset of photography. And um, for the occasion of the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination, who is our most, um, we love in Atlanta, he is, he is King. Mm -hmm. He's everywhere. We love Dr. King um, and the history of the movement. So I, I kind of put my neck out and asked if I could do it. Um, I hadn't, it was my first curatorial project kind of as lead curator on it. And um, what I really wanted to do is use the historic civil rights material to make a connection with everything that's happening now in the United States. I think we've seen both in just regular culture as well as in arts, the ways that um, there's still a lot of inequities and tensions and issues around race and representation in the arts. And so what I proposed to do was to have, um, and this wasn't totally my own idea, my colleague Greg Harris, who is the assistant curator of photography, um, had wanted to do this in some way. So I kind of stole his idea and ran with it. But (laughs) (laughs) um, of juxtaposing contemporary work that dealt with issues of race and civil rights with historical work. Um, and I think it, it was very successful. And I think having, being able to tell a narrative about how um, the way that the media kind of vilifies and demonizes the Black Lives Matter movement is very similar to how the media demonized the civil rights movement. I don't think that that's a history that people are very aware of. I think we, hmm. you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and everybody, you know, sees that history through rose-colored glasses. But um, this notion of like empathy and public opinion um, I think is like an important one to have and photography plays such a big role in that hmm. as do like media narratives. So we were able to acquire um, new work by Sheila Pre-Bright, who's an Atlanta-based photographer who's been photographing the Black Lives Matter movement for the past few years. We acquired some work by David Alakugi. I don't know if I'm saying his last name right, but he came to Atlanta and photographed these kind of portraits of sight of where these events took place while he was studying at Yale and um, we just acquired a portfolio that memorializes the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing by Dawood Bay and some new works by Jason Lazarus and Matthew Brandt. Hmm. Um, so it was a really big kind of conceptual and process-oriented sweep of how contemporary artists are um, re-engaging. I mean, not re-engaging because it's been going on ever since. I mean, a fire that no water could put out is meant to speak to the fact that the civil rights movement never ended and obviously it still needs to keep going. Who do you show from the collection? I really wanted to focus on um, 
photographers, not only who are, you know, magnum kind of uh, big shots, but <laughs> which we have plenty of, yeah. but also um, artists who are activists or maybe had this kind of more um, instrumental use of photography. So in particular, I really want to focus on the work of Dr. Doris Derby, hmm. who's based in Atlanta. She was a SNCC field worker in um, rural Mississippi in the 1960s. And um, did amazing work with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. And they equipped her with a camera and she started documenting women and children and these kind of um, out of the limelight activists of the movement. So her work really focuses on this non-urban, non-male, um, non-kind of poster child version of the civil rights movement, which I think is really compelling. And she's telling it from the inside. Um and I was really excited to have, we had a program at the museum where she was in conversation with Sheila Prebright. So it was a woman from the movement historically and a woman from the movement now um, in conversation about what it's like to be an activist and a photographer. And it was an amazing wow. evening. That, yeah. That sounds incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, just some, I, I was calling them collection underdogs, but people who are maybe not the um, Bruce Davidson's and um, Danny Lyons, although we did have some Danny Lyons work in the show. I love his work. <laughs> um, but yeah, so James Hinton, Dr. Derby. Um, we had some James Corrales work. We did have a Gordon Parks. I also threw in a Roida Carava that we had in the collection, mm. which I was very excited to do. Um, his work is not really considered part of our civil rights collection, but he did so much activism on behalf of African-American photographers in the Northeast that I felt like his presence was really important and really related to civil rights photography. I know this might seem a bit like discombobulated, but I'm curious to ask you about going back to earlier days of straight photography. Yeah. Th there was, um, there was a little book that I came across you did called Brune, which I, which was with Gotland, mm -hmm. I believe. Yeah. It's a small book of photos mm -hmm. and there's a poem in the book that, mm -hmm. I, that I wanted to ask you about. Did you write that poem? I did. I think it's called On Trying. Yeah. Do you want me to read it? I'd love for you to, yeah. Cool. I'm going to grab it. Okay. A poem about trying. Trying. I tried and it didn't work out. I gave up and lost it all. We took to the mountain, imagined the lying down dog, bear, or woman, ran out of invisible crackling that never culminated in a light or a smoke. Trying. I tried until it got overworked. I gave up and forgot my line. We took to that cool black lake at six o'clock, trail emptied, threw a brick at a frozen pond, an iridescent target of concentric loops, so much like my eyes that are always fucking tired. A loop around the hole, the hole. A loop around the orb, the orb. A loop around the clear, the clear. A loop around the black, the black. Trying. I tried until it forgot I was trying. I gave up, but it kept going. It took to dry land, looking into that vastness, and decided to take the first step. But then what? Hmm. When did you write that? I wrote that... Um, it's, real, it's, it's so beautiful, by the way. I've read it many times. <laughs> and I've always, I've always been curious about it. Yeah, it's a poem that I wrote... Um, about leaving New York and about leaving, I had moved to New York like a week after my 18th birthday to study art at my dream art school and to be a 
famous photographer and a famous artist and everything was going to be perfect. And, um, you know, I fell in love. I was living with someone. I was working on top of school. I was showing a little bit my photography and publishing and things were happening in a great way. And I kind of just got to this point where it stopped feeling right. And at the same time, um, I had like a really bad breakup, which I think I alluded to early in this podcast, but, um, essentially like the breakup happened right as I was feeling so disillusioned with photography and with, um, just trying and feeling like I had been spending months and years just trying and trying in New York and trying to be, um, this photographer and trying to be a good girlfriend and trying to be a good student and trying to win. (laughs) And I, um, eventually just like gave in and I packed up my car and I headed West and I lived, um, out West for, with my grandparents in New Mexico for a while. Um, partly to do some caretaking my grandma had encephalitis, which is kind of like a stroke. And I was working on Brune while I was right after I left. Um, and Nick, Nick was really interested. Nick Gotland was really interested in, um, publishing some of the photographs I had made from my time in New York. And I really wanted to look back and just kind of crystallize, um, what my kind of straight photography practice had meant to me. So these are all um, four by five, six by sevens from many different places all over the country, years worth of photographing. Um, and a lot of them were from my thesis show at Cooper. And the poem kind of just came out of, of everything like this. There's one picture in the book that's of a TV in a, in a driveway. And it's um, this kind of like shitty prefab townhouse that my mom moved into after like her our childhood home got foreclosed on. It just felt like everything was kind of in this, you know, rosy (laughs) way. Like life was just changing and happening and the work I was changing and, you know, it's kind of a coming of age in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Where does the title come from? Brune. I love to make up words. I made (laughs) it up. (laughs) You made it up. Yeah. It was like meant to, I think it's on the website. It's like, a word I made up to describe the situation of it being like cold and crisp and you feeling kind of just like raw as a human. Hmm. You know that feeling like when you walk outside and you're kind of just like the weight of the world's on your shoulders, but like it's beautiful out and it's cold out and you just feel this kind of profound, like profundity. And yeah, yeah, that was Brune. Hmm. Are titles very important to you? Yeah. I mean, I love words. I love writing, obviously like, I write poetry, I write short stories, I write, um, I publish essays and some art journals and yeah, I love, language is like the thing. That's the thing. That's yeah. the, that was, that, that's the first thing. That's the first thing. It's like the first way I learned how to express myself. Yeah. Um, you, you wrote a piece called, a piece to Psychopompopolis. Psychopompopolis that accompanied your last exhibition mm-hmm. in, in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's a pretty, it's a mind blowing piece. It's, unbe- it's yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll link to it. It's a publish my short story. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a book deal. <laughs> <laughs> Is that in the cards? Is that something that you, do you aspire to do? I would love, I mean, if I Aaron had time, I would love to write a book. I always think about it. I love doing it. I mean, even now, like I just finished Dr. Doris Derby, who I was talking about. I just wrote this like long form 
um, interview with her for art papers, which is like a internationally circulated arts journal. So I, yeah, I can't help myself. (laughs) (laughs) It's just coming out of your pores. (laughs) I mean, I'm just, yeah, I don't know what's wrong with me. (laughs) I certainly don't think there's anything wrong. It's all, uh, it's all pretty positive stuff as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about? No, I guess I just want to say like, photography was a space where like as a woman I felt partly welcomed but also that it was very much still a man's world and a white man's world and I just like want to encourage if there's anyone listening who does not embody that and feels alienated like just know that there are ways to love a thing and to like and reinvent it for yourself so that it works on within your history and like on your terms um, cause I feel very happy that I was able to do that for myself after Brune and breaking up with <laughs> straight photography. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's kill a... the father. It's <laughs> <laughs> not Friedlander. No, no not Friedlander. <laughs> no, no. Let's, let's keep Lee. All right. Well, thanks a lot. That was really great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking. That was my conversation with Erin Jane Nelson that we recorded in New Orleans. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhame. Music in this episode by Damian Lazarus, Michelle Macklin, and Poddington Bear. If you like what we've been doing, take a second and give us a review on iTunes. It helps others discover the show. You can also follow us on Instagram and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.